Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is titled Financial Scams and was based on 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-10. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Reading scripture, so grateful for, let me just give you a window into some of uh, Carol, uh, Errol, and their family's heart. Several years ago, there's a program called A Better Chance where students in some urban environments who have, who are at schools where there's just not many opportunities and there's just challenges uh, can move to Amherst and they live in community together to have better access to education. Carol and Errold were the house parents for those students living in community, pouring their lives into them. Just one example, the former governor, Deval Patrick, was a graduate of that program. And so, Carol, to you and to your family, we just give thanks for how your faith is real and how you live out your faith. Amen. Yeah. Father, speak to us. Continue to reveal to us what's really happening in the depths of our hearts, our souls, the affections of our hearts. Guide us with habits that will bring the kind of change that will bring glory to you and help us to live out the flourishing that you call us to and that we might steward our lives and our resources for the flourishing of all peoples. This we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We're in our Habits of the Heart sermon series. We're identifying some of the different idols in our culture that can captivate our hearts. Because let's remember that idols aren't simply uh, ancient statues that primitive people bow down to. But there are all kinds of idols lurking in our culture that can captivate our hearts and begin to warp our character toward those things when they become the ultimate sources of life for us and dethrone God from our lives. And so this week we come to the idol of money. Now, what is it that makes money such an issue in our culture? I think there's a few things. One of them is that money or status or wealth or things is one of the ultimate, most tangible sources of security in our lives. When we think about security, we normally think about what's the stuff we have that we can hold on to, we often clutch so tightly. But as soon as things or money become the ultimate source of our hope or our validation or our status, a challenge then comes. In other words, as soon as things become a counterfeit God for us, we begin to live in fear because we always fear, will I lose that job? Will there be a downturn in the economy? Will something happen where I won't be able to have those things because they're not reliable? I think a second reason that money can be such a challenge in our culture is that it's the ultimate sign of status. Rather we realize it or not, our default cultural mode is when we see someone based on kind of their socioeconomic placement, that's how we view people. That's their status unless we wash ourselves of that lens and look at people differently. And as soon as we kind of achieve the next kind of gentrification of status that we hope for, we begin to realize, you know, that did give me a good fix, but it really still leaves me empty. That's that's not the ultimate source of peace and hope and purpose and meaning in my life. So security, status, and then the third thing that can make money so challenging, so seductive in our culture is superiority. You see, as soon as we become financially successful, as soon as we move to the next kind of socioeconomic 
bracket. It's so easy for us to then begin to feel like I'm kind of an expert in everything. I've arrived. I've understood this. The stat, the culture has applauded it. And so now, like, I got it. And then we lose becoming teachable. And it impacts our faith and our character. And we wake up one day and we wonder, whatever happened to me? So those are just a few reasons why money can be so incredibly challenging in our culture. And, and I believe for every culture in all times of our world. <clears throat> Think about the difference. When God becomes the ultimate source of our security. God who says, I love you, period. No, no ellipses within. Here's, <laughs> here's what you need to do or achieve in order for me to love you. Just, I love you for who you are. Brokenness and all. I'm the lover of your soul. You'll never not be loved. That's the ultimate source of security. And the God who says, and I'll never leave you. Or it, it may feel counterintuitive, but I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. God is the ultimate source of our status. Because in Christ, we have the status of being God's beloved, cherished, forgiven, called children with meaning and purpose in life. And an economic downturn, the loss of a job, mistakes we make, shame that we might feel from our culture, none of those things can ever take our status with Christ away. Well, that's the ultimate source of security and status for our lives. So this morning we're going to explore money traps. Because I think money has a lot of traps. Because no one ever says, I really want to become greedy. No one says that, right? Or, you know, I think I'm going to choose not to be very satisfied with my life. No couple stands at the altar and says, let's damage our marriage because of finance. Matter of fact, why don't we put that into our vows for better or for worse, and we're going to damage our marriage because of finances, right? But it happens, doesn't it? To a huge majority of people. So let's explore kind of four financial traps and through that, understand some things about our hearts and some habits that can bring tangible change. Uh, we join me in 1 Timothy chapter 6. For those who are here in the house, in the house Bibles, it's on page 1177. Uh, for those of you who are watching online, 1 Timothy chapter 6, for all of us, let's cue it up. Find it in our Bibles or in the Pew Bibles. Four questions that kind of probe for us our relationship with money. Number one, what makes me content? 1 Timothy chapter 6, let's join in verse 6. What makes me content? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now move down to verse 8. Same theme, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Twice we read this word content, verse 6 and verse 8. It's fascinating because let's remember that the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language and we translated into the languages of the world. And the original word in the Greek text for content is the word autarkeia. It's, it's a compound word. The word self and the word sufficient. And the theme is, are we sufficient with our contentment within ourselves? Or do we search for contentment through the resources of this world, through having the right job or being in the right social circle or being applauded for the right things, or unfortunately maybe being of the, of the right race for that culture or the right socioeconomics for that culture, all kinds of different markers of different cultures. 
that then can cause people to, to somehow feel some kind of way of being content. And what the author's talking about and what God wants to communicate to us is when there is a self-sufficient contentment, when there's a contentment within us, then the circumstances of this world can still be challenging, but they're not the sources of whether or not we're content, whether we have real peace and joy within. And the author cites two examples in verse 8. As long as we have food and clothing, what the author's really saying is as long as we have our basic needs met, because of all that Christ has done for us, lavishing His grace to us on the cross, because of God's unquenchable love for us, we can be content. Now, we might in our day say, well, food, clothing, it, housing, health care, and maybe access to education, right? Things have become a little bit more complex. But those basic needs of life. But you see, the, the idol of money begins to beckon us to bow down and make sacrifices to it when we say, if only. I don't mean a dream. I have this vision of, of, of achieving this. But I mean, if only I had this, then I'd really be content. Then I'd really be happy. You know, if only, if only we had a little bit more money and we could move into that income bracket. People look at us differently, wouldn't they? You know, if only I could move into that neighborhood. You know, if only I could follow kind of the gentrification of our culture, we would never publicly admit it. But if only I could, then I would be viewed differently by people. If only we could live in that neighborhood. If only I could be part of this social circle. If only that person could be part of my life. And then what happens is we begin the comparison spiral. Because as soon as we advance to the next kind of socioeconomic status, we, we realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm in the lower end of this. I better change that. And then we strive to work to the higher end and then the next. And then we begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm comparison. I'm in the comparison spiral. We're now at the lower end of this one. And we spend all our lives striving to try to somehow find our contentment by somehow posturing ourselves in the eyes of the culture, the people around us. Now, I want to make sure to communicate. This is an anti-materialistic rant. That, that's not what this is. This is an anti-material rant because it's good. It's wise for us to set financial goals. It's good for us to achieve things. But as soon as the seduction of turning those things into our meaning and purpose our source of life and hope and meaning. In other words, as soon as those things dethrone God and become little gods in our heart, that's when those things begin to own us. They begin to shape us and we wake up someday and wonder how in the world did this happen? See, they can't create contentment. Ongoing, long-term contentment within us. In, a, in, in an article a, a while back titled The Culture of Discontent, columnist Peggy Noonan wrote this. People in our day are healthier, more affluent, and better informed than ever. We live longer, eat better, dress warmer, play more than ever in the history of the human race. But are we happier? Or are we just richer, healthier, better dressed, messed up people? How much is enough for you? Who's going to decide what's enough for you to be happy? The advertising industry? They'll be real happy to decide how much you need, how much is enough. So the first question is, what makes us content? Remembering that so often wealth is our identity 
and can become a counterfeit God so easily for us. What makes us content? How much of our contentment comes in Christ and how God views us with security and status in Christ that we could have never earned, but it's just lavished to us in Christ through the cross? Are we trying to find our contentment by somehow manufacturing the good life that somehow will make us feel content with Him? What makes me content? Second question is, where's my greatest treasure? Move down to verse 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Life is short. Eternity is forever. And we can't take it with us. When I was growing up, uh, my brother Stephen was three years older than me, and we were just a little bit competitive together, just a little bit. Uh, fortunately, we're at peace now. It's all ended. Okay, Stephen and I, there, there's no more competition. You know, um, I don't tease him that I still have hair and he doesn't. I don't do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that, right? Yeah. But um, Stephen, if you're listening to this, I love you, my brother. <laughs> So, we used to play a lot of games growing up. And one of the games we enjoyed, probably maybe kind of like you know, many of you, was Monopoly. I think somehow my parents were hoping we would learn like, about life and investments and responsibility for playing Monopoly. And we played Monopoly, and we played the fiercest battles. And he always beat me. Now, it wasn't because he was any smarter than me, even though he's a lot smarter than me, but the reason was he was three years older than me. Okay? And he, he beat me time and time. He, he, he didn't just win. You know, when you're like, oh, I think I'm going to go bankrupt. He, he would say, Greg, I'll tell you what. Why don't you just give me that one piece of property and $50, okay? And he would like dredge it out for 45 minutes. And I would just be slowly losing and losing and ground down until there was nothing left, okay? Now you understand some of the reasons I am the way I am, okay? But, but there was one time. I was probably 11, 12, 13. I, I wasn't 46. I was probably like 11, 12, 13 when I finally beat him. It was the only time I ever beat him. One time I actually beat my brother. Stephen, I beat you in Monopoly. I love you. And so here's what happened. As soon as I won, I'm like, great. I'm going to go get back then the Polaroid camera. I'm going to call the family together. We're going to leave this on the kitchen table for like six weeks. I won. This is great. I'm going to get the camera. And I'm like, Stephen, what are you doing? And he's putting it away. He's saying, oh, congratulations. It all goes back in the box. And he's putting it, I'm like, wait, no, no, Steve, this is the greatest in my stop, stop putting it away. And you see, that's how we live. Because see, someday it's all going to go back in the box. This life is short. So it's great to have goals and to achieve things. But how do we steward those things for what really matters most? Because someday it's all going to go back in the box. We can't take it with us. You know, we're not going to get to the gates of heaven and God's going to say, wow, th thanks for bringing all that stuff here where the streets are gold and where there's every resource imaginable, right? It all goes back in the box. So that asks the question, where's our greatest treasure? Are we storing up treasure in heaven by the way that we're lavish stewards, the way we're generous, the way that we care about the flourishing of all peoples? The way that we care about people knowing God's love and grace that could be so transformative in people's lives. If you're looking for an example of this, Jesus Christ. The person with the greatest wealth and privilege and status of all human history. God in the flesh. 
who arrived with nothing. Jesus didn't bring anything from heaven. He, he, he arrived naked as a little baby, vulnerable as a little baby, and born to kind of impoverished parents. And then when it was time for Jesus to leave the world on the cross, he appeared in his culture to be nothing. He was literally stripped naked and nailed to the cross and was viewed with shame. He brought nothing in, he left nothing, and, and he took nothing with him. But the impact of his life, of where he was storing up treasure. You see, he made eternal investments. And what that means is you and I now have the lavish riches of God's grace poured out into our lives. We have the unimaginable promises of God walking with us in his spirit, never leave us or forsake us. We have purpose and meaning to be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in a broken, fractured, violent world. And we have an eternal destiny that's not based on our status, but what Christ did on the cross for us. That is wealth. Where is our greatest treasure? The third of the questions for us to ask ourselves is, what tempts me? Verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Notice the progression in this passage. Anytime we're reading Scripture, one of the things to be looking for is, is their progression of something that starts smaller and grows, because that's normally a warning for us of things that can seem small or we can miss, but eventually grow beyond what we could have imagined. And so, first of all, it's people who want to get rich. In other words, as soon as our... As soon as we, we, we begin to have some of that desire to worship the counterfeit God, you know, it's like, man, if only I could have this, then I'd be content, then I'd be complete, then, 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 then I would have made it. Then that evokes temptation around us. We begin to notice the temptations more. And then that can lead us into a trap that we weren't expecting and that then just plunges our desires because remember, whatever uh, our heart gets captivated by, that has the greatest control over us. Then we can plunge into this spiral and it can lead to destruction. How many people's lives do we know who when they became greedy, they, they either became people we just didn't really want to spend time with or they became workaholics and they ruined their family or they became arrogant because of their wealth or they were so insecure that no matter how much they kept accumulating or possessing or achieving, it was never enough. But it's fascinating because the word temptation in verse 9 is translated from a Greek word, perosmos. This is a word for reeling in a fish. Now, now just imagine, you know, we're, we're fish, which means we have a fish brain. It means there's not a lot going on, okay? And we're just swimming in the ocean or a stream or, or a pond. And suddenly it's like, oh, greatest day of our life, whatever a day is, greatest day in our life, there's this worm. And, oh, man, this is the best meal, right? We're like, oh, it's great. And then we bite into it. And what happens? It's a trap. And we are reeled in. That's, that's the portrait that the author is giving to us. It's like there's hooks, there's traps around us of greed, wealth, status, privilege. And not that those in and of themselves are bad. They're all morally, ethically neutral. But as soon as they become the thing that we think will make us content or give us our status or feel loved, then they become hooks that can draw us, lure us. So here's a question for, 
for each of us. I'm preaching to myself. I struggle with all these things every day of my life. We have to make intentional decisions. What are some of those financial temptations? What are some of those dangling hooks as we're swimming through life? Maybe it's that we've confused luxuries and necessities. And we have to recalibrate our view through a biblical lens of living simply and investing in the flourishing and the hope of all peoples more generously. Maybe that hook is, if only I had this, then I'd be happy. Maybe it's the hook of the comparison spiral where we begin comparing and we always find people have more than us. Or we compare and say, <laughs> look at that. They don't have what I have. And we begin to feel superior. Or maybe it's just some of the baits of our culture and we become so acculturated that we need to stand back and just say, God, would you give me a biblical lens? Would you help me to see through the lens of Christ at the world again and at the purchases that I'm making and of my finances and of what, what the gravity of my heart pulls toward. So what's one change that we can make? Throughout this sermon series, and I think always with our faith, we want to be thinking heart and habit. What's happening in my heart? That, that's the core. But if we don't align habits, it'll just be a sentiment of the heart. What's one small change we can begin with? to begin to get a little bit of traction. And then through that, it makes the next change, the next change. And, and we're on the trajectory of following Christ more fully with our heart. Now, let me just give you an example. Let's just imagine that we could come up with a $3 a day change. Okay? So maybe it's, we're going to do one less espresso a day. Or we don't really need four streaming services. We're going to cut it back to two or maybe even one. I know it means we'll only have access to like 3,000 movies every day, but we're going to cut back our streaming services. Or, or, or maybe it's that we um, uh, decide to do one less um, uh, of those little expenses a day that we don't think about. Maybe it's, I'm going to wait to, to go up to the next gadget, maybe a year or two or three. Or maybe it's, you know, I'm not going to buy the next car quite yet because this one's running well and do I really need it yet? Or, or maybe it's, maybe we can start to make some changes in our expenses and we can start to dig a little bit out of debt because the amount that we're servicing debt. Now, let's say we can do something like that, $3 a day. Do that over 40 years, $50,400. Imagine the difference in our world. How many children could be sponsored by like Compassion and World Vision with $50,000? How much more Bible translation could put the Bible in the hands of people who've never read Scripture before? How many women who are being trafficked might be rescued with $50,000? How much more could churches in our culture, how much more ministry for their communities could happen? I can just go on and on and on. Small changes lead to big impact. So we've talked about what makes me content, where's my greatest treasure, what tempts me, and now finally we come to the core of the heart, what's the love of my life? Uh, move down to verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with grief. Grief. 
Now, note, this is one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible, okay? It doesn't say money is a root of all evil. It says the love of money. Because let's remember, money is ethically neutral. Money, privilege, power can be one of the most beautiful things in the world when we steward it for God's glory and for the flourishing of all peoples. Money, privilege, wealth, status can be toxic if we use it self-centeredly without thinking about our neighbors and our world and how it can shape us in ways less and less like Jesus. And so we read that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's really asking, what's at the root? What do I really love most? What are the affections of my heart that then drive me in my daily decisions? And think about roots. It's a root of evil, right? We don't see roots, do we? When you see a tree, right? If we didn't know any botany, we would just say, man, that tree, how does it grow so well, right? But we know beneath the surface where we can't see, there's roots. And those roots are the ultimate nourishment for the tree. It's the same in our lives. We have roots deep into our heart. And those roots are what ultimately bring life or death, bring Christ-likeness or being warped. What's happening down in those roots of the affections of our heart? And so when we think about uh, finances, when we think about money, what, what's at the root, my, my core root beliefs, my core root affections about money. Now, I'm going to be really honest here, okay? Here's, well, hopefully I'm always honest. But I'm going to be especially honest now, okay? Anyway, so just, just imagine, here's kind of a test for us, okay? Of, of, of at least with finances, kind of a test for what we really love, okay? So if God is really number one, the first thing that we would do with our finances is we would discern how much is enough, how, how can I live simply but enjoy the things that God, that, that, that God gives and be the most generous possible, okay? And so we would then, first thing would be our tithe. Or first thing would be, here's my financial commitment. That's on, on the top and then everything else is going to come. So we might have to make some changes to do that, right? We might have to make some sacrifices in order to do that. And I just want to mention before we go further, First Baptist is not in a fundraising season. This doesn't have anything to do with how much people give to First Baptist. In one way, I really don't care where you give. Here's my pastor's heart. I'm called to shepherd you, and we're called to shepherd each other. Amen? I don't want you and me to stand before God and say, you were a Christian in name, but not really Christ follower. It's like, oh, oh, what do you mean? Well, to follow Jesus means to follow the most generous person in human history who laid down his life. And you kind of called yourself a Christian, but you really didn't lay down your life. And one of those areas, finances. Like, oh. See, I want us to stand before God as generous people. And, and you may be a student, a young adult, and, and First Baptist may never see most of your giving. Praise God. Because here's why. Because... If you can be part of the spiritual tree of this, for, of this church family, someday I'd love to stand before God. And God said, you know, things are pretty tight at First Baptist, weren't they? Yeah, but let me show you the people who were young adults and they graduated and they learned to be stewards. And then they started making big money because you are going to make big money, okay? 
And so when that happens, what does that mean? It means you're going to be flourishing stewards wherever you live. Glory to God. Isn't that beautiful? What a great legacy. Part of a legacy for a church. And so here's the real question. If we really love God, God is on the throne of our hearts, the first thing that we'll think about is, how can I begin by uh, some kind of commitment in all my life, but we're talking about finances this morning with God. Because if not, if idols are brewing and controlling us, it means we'll give God the leftovers. Now just imagine with me, imagine with our family, with our spouse. Oh, honey, I'm so excited. Let's start going on dates. Great. When should we start? Well, it's been kind of busy. Um, when I have time, I'll get back to you. That's going to do some damage to your marriage, okay? With our children, I'd love to play with you. I'd love to come to your recital. I'd love to come to your game. But someday when I have time, I'll do that. That's going to wreak a lot of damage to that child's life. If we said to our employer, I'm so excited about this new initiative, this new work project, but I don't know, you see, I have a busy weekend, so I, I don't know if I can really start that on Monday. Or if students go to their professor and they say, oh, I'm going to have that paper ready. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's been kind of busy and things. Could, could I turn it in three months late? I mean, that's not a problem, is it? Because I'm kind of busy. Leftovers. Or imagine our house or our rent and we say, oh yeah, we're going we're gonna to pay the mortgage if there's money left over. That's called foreclosure, right? Think about it. But... But that's what we do with God. We say, God, if, if, if things arrange, I'll... And so I just, I pray for all of us. This is, I think, the most difficult topic or one of them to talk about in the American church. It's, it's why Jesus talked about money just about more than anything else. It's why more than 2,300 verses in Scripture reference money. Because God knows how seductive the idol of money is. For all of us, myself included, as a church family, let's continue to go on a journey of living simply, of giving lavishly. And someday we're going to look back and the greatest reward in heaven, to me, is not going to be a palace I live in. It's, it's going to be God saying, let me show you the impact of your life and your generosity. Wow. That's what I'm excited for. To wrap it all up, the city that I grew up in, had a guy named Ralph who owned two grocery stores. As time passed, these two grocery stores, my mom, as I was growing up, every Saturday, she shopped at Ralph's Thriftway. Uh, when, she, when I was young, she, I rode in the cart, and, and she said, Greg, I used to go right down the middle of the aisle, because if you could reach it, it's amazing how much stuff just got put into the cart. Okay? Every Saturday, she'd go to Ralph's Thriftway. So as time passed, Ralph, Ralph's Thriftway still had kind of a hometown feel, but it was really thriving and then had a marketplace and a little restaurant. And, and, and so Ralph began to be quite successful. Now, I had no idea of this until years later. I went to school with his grandchildren. But So as he began to become successful, now Ralph was a Christ follower. He decided and his family decided, okay, we have a nice home. We have nice, you know, you know a little bit of used cars. And, we have, and we've done a few things for our children, grandchildren, education. We're going to cap it right there. So they would live on 90% and tithe 10. And it slowly changed, slowly changed. The last number of years, they were living on 10% and giving 90. 
he funded a youth pastor position at a church right in the heart of the city. Some of the students from that youth group reached out to my brother, and my brother gave his life to Christ. My brother began to share with me, and I gave my life to Christ. See, this morning, if this preaching has any value, if the shepherding has any value in your life, thank Ralph. Because he didn't fall into the financial traps. He lived simply and generously, and he funded a position that reached me for Christ. And here we are. Amen? I pray, my brothers and sisters, let's, let's, here's homework. Let's review our finances. Actually, our whole life, but let's narrow it to finances because throughout the series, we're looking at all kinds of different topics. But for finances, let's review our finances. You know, how, how might we be able to live a little bit simpler, make a few sacrifices, be a little bit more generous, And as we do that, let's see how those habits grow our hearts. And as our hearts grow, then the habits will grow. And someday maybe you will say, wow, God, I've grown so much. And I have the privilege of partnering in your kingdom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.